Welcome to Neil Rewind. My name is Anne van Maurik and I make this podcast together with Thijs Bouwknecht. Yeah, these are crazy times on so many levels, but things ought to go on, including our podcast series. In this eighth episode of Neil Rewind, we speak with Iva Vukosic about her PhD research to Serbian paramilitaries and irregular armed forces during the breakup of Yugoslavia. Uh, we interviewed Eva in November, but because she recently defended her PhD online because of this whole situation with Corona, we felt we needed to ask her just another question to catch up with time, as it were. Because defending your PhD under these extraordinary circumstances must have been a crazy and awkward experience. We were wondering, how did it go? And how is she going to look back at it? And what's next? And what's she working on now? Obviously, we could not meet and record it, so we asked Eva to record her answer by dictaphone. She sent it to me, and I edited her answer at the end of this episode. Let me ask the first question. Um, who are you? Where are you from? What are you researching? Okay, so my name is Eva Vukusic. I'm originally from Zagreb, from Croatia, but I've been in The Hague for 10 years now, so I'm also a Dutch citizen, and by now I feel a little bit Dutch as well. Um, I just completed my PhD at the University of Utrecht at the History Department and I studied Serbian paramilitaries in the breakup of Yugoslavia. Uh, it's based mostly but not exclusively on documents from the ICTY, which is the International uh, Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia in The Hague. Um, I am also um, a visiting uh, fellow, a visiting research fellow at the War Studies Department at King's College in London. And today you're at the, the NEOT for a conference on negotiating displacement and you just told us that you don't come from the Netherlands. From <laughs> yeah. Croatia, from yeah, yeah, where yeah. there was a war. Yeah, is there, is there a relationship? Uh, there isn't. I came in 2006 when the war was uh, very much over for already uh, uh, 11 years at least. Um, so that's when I left Croatia, first went to, to, to Bosnia and I came here to the Netherlands in 2009. So my own uh, quote-unquote displacement was very much voluntary uh, and it was not caused by any threats to my security. Uh, luckily I came here as a, an immigrant, as an expat, um, I came here to work. I, I worked uh, at the ICTY, at the Sense News Agency for a number of years, studying evidence from the Yugoslav uh, Tribunal. So. Um, yeah, I'm an immigrant, I suppose, or as people often say, to label for, it. yeah, yeah, yeah. As, you yeah. know, an immigrant, an expat, um, I am that. Going, going, going to the to the very heart of the topic, which is paramilitaries. Coincidentally, we sit next to a bridge where Arkan was once arrested. I know that picture. <laughs> a a paramilitary yeah. man, as, as we as we tend to to think about um, his his person. Can you explain a little bit what is your main finding about? paramilitaries in the context of your research and right. of course you've been writing about it yes. in your so, PhD. Um, so. Right. So I would say that one interesting thing about paramilitaries is that they are, and this is something that brought me to my research, is that they are mentioned in literally every book on the former Yugoslavia, uh, but it, they're often treated in bulk as if they're all the same, which is really not the case at all. Um, I would say and that's how I divide them in my research as well. I talk about quote-unquote professionalized units and non-professionalized units. Now this is uh, problematic in itself and anyone who's interested can read my book uh, <laughs> because it's a little bit too too difficult What's to the name go to into. Book? Uh, it doesn't have a name yet, <laughs> but it's Serbian paramilitaries in the breakup of Yugoslavia. And now it's going to be some kind of a sort of play uh, on that. Um, uh, but I, I, so I want to say that uh, paramilitary is definitely not the, the same. They recruited differently, they acted differently in the field. 
um, and they were set up and operated differently. One of the reasons why states use them is because they provide a certain distance, a certain plausible deniability. So a, a way in which politicians and sort of uh, statesmen can shield themselves from uh, what these paramilitaries do in the field. There are certain patterns to their violence. So for example, I have a chapter uh, in my PhD that discusses why some units were much more likely to torture, for example, than others. Um, so my sort of ambition was to uh, uh, uncover a little bit about the mechanics uh, uh, by which states create this plausible deniability, mm -hmm. so how that works in the field, um, and to discover some of the and uncover some of the patterns of violence. So why, why is it that some uh, units are much more likely to torture uh, than others? That's a little bit too long of a story for, uh, for a, a short uh, podcast. But I think it's really important to remember that when we talk about paramilitaries, it's a very, very vast, uh, diverse uh, field. Um, and that these units are useful. I think ultimately that's the finding uh, of my research is that at the ICTY, for example, no one is, as of yet has gone to prison for what uh, units have done, especially across the border. Yeah. That's, a key, that's a key thing. If you're doing uh, covert operations across the border through paramilitaries, uh, it's easier to be shielded from uh, criminal responsibility. So I think one sort of frustrating finding is that it really works. Mm. Now we'll see the outcome <laughs> of this important trial that is now uh, at the Mechanism for International Criminal Tribunals, but you know, it's something I think that we as researchers should definitely uh, pay attention to. Because one, one thing that I was just thinking about, you said that you're chilling out <laughs> after having delivered your, your PhD, which, right. is, which is already approved, which is yeah, a wonderful yeah. thing. Congratulations. Thank you. You're going to defend in April. Mm -hmm. What is the question you're going to fear during your defense? What is the question you're going to hope for? Oh, it's a and really interesting enjoy. question. Yeah. Um, somehow, I don't know how, but I'm not, I'm not too concerned about the defense. And maybe this speaks to my own arrogance or something. I have no idea. But I presented the research findings for my PhD at like a thousand million conferences. So I think it's reasonably uh, unlikely that I'm going to get something that's completely what they would say left field, like completely unexpected. Now I bet this is going to happen because I jinxed it, <laughs> you know, but what I want to say, and, and this is maybe something that, that other people who are in, in situations of sort of research and PhDs like present everywhere all the time, everything because then it makes you uh, more likely to hear any big issues or any gaps, or it might really be useful uh, for you. What I, I guess, what I would um, maybe fear, but I don't think, I mean, I don't know what defenses look like, I guess, in every case, but I would maybe fear if someone would be like, but you missed this one group and this one village. Yeah, yeah. And then I would be like, yeah, but there was a million of them and I can't possibly put, you know? <laughs> yeah. So that's going to be my my response. I, my, I I deal with select units because you can't you yeah. cannot possibly pack all of them. Yeah. Uh, I, I what I want to say is that sort of deal with what I would quote what I would say maybe are most important or biggest or most influential. What I would hope for maybe is that people would ask me about implications for criminal trial. What does this mean in the ways in which we can sort of conduct investigations and and how can we try to bring these kinds of cases to court? in order to have a more successful result in prosecuting people who run them. No, not only guys who are like 19 years old and, and join them, but like people who run them. Um, and I think one interesting and important finding is about insiders. These covert units, people who are inside sort of the circles of, of power and decision making know things that no one else will know. So unless we try to get 
um, evidence from these people inside, um, I think we are making sort of a strategic mistake. I think it's really important to cooperate with people who are willing to say like, yep, you know, we've done some things that we shouldn't have. Now I, for whatever reason, I want to cooperate with prosecutions and, and prosecution and, and provide evidence. I think that's really um, uh, crucial. And maybe like comparative things that, for example, I um, am increasingly interested in looking at these kinds of relationships between states and units in other contexts, for mm -hmm. example, in Ukraine because I've never studied Ukraine in detail, but prima facie, it seems to look a lot like Yugoslavia looked in 1991, uh, where uh, Russia is funding, equipping, directing at least part of the rebel forces. So I'm interested in the questions of like, okay, how does this work? How do states learn from one another mm. as to how, how to sort of hide their footprints? You know, so I guess in one way, I fear the overly detailed and I'm excited about kind of zooming out, which I think most researchers arrived at, you know, and once you, do you finish your PhD, you're like, okay, so what does this mean? So what does this in comparison to some other, you know, some other place? So in the sources you use, do you see on the discursive fields, do you see any hiding mechanisms in that? Especially the military language is very good in that, I think and maybe politics can take it over mm -hmm. um, or use the same military language. Do you see that kind of hiding of violence in language? Right. Um, I see silences about uh, uh, operations of paramilitaries. We, for example, Milosevic is notorious for not keeping notes or the, like the notes from some of his meetings are notoriously like missing, either never uh, uh, sort of existed in the first place because he was a smart guy. So especially today when we do have or uh, sort of threats of, you know, investigative reporting and prosecutions, states men and women are not stupid. So they're not going to be officially making notes about like, yes, 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 we should rape village and expel that village. That's, you know, that's I think really something that we cannot, I mean, you know, if some researcher has it, mm. bingo, great, mm. good for you. But, <laughs> but that's normally, I think, not the kind of evidence that, that we see. Um, sort of some of the measures that I saw for, um, that I saw for sort of hiding the role of the state is some, some of them are very, very, um, kind of administrative in nature, but very, very effective. For example, um, uh, members of uh, units that were affiliated with, for example, the Red Berets, which is kind of, quote unquote, the most elite uh, uh, unit out of these units that I studied that re related to the regime in Belgrade. Um, members of these units sometimes had multiple IDs, giving them or proving their employment with several different security agencies in different places in Serbia, in the uh, area that was controlled by Croatian Serbs in Krajina, and in areas that were controlled by Bosnian Serbs. Now I know for people that don't study this, it's going to be poof, you know, what's going on? Where are all these people and what are all these territories? But just trust me when I tell you that this means that it creates a confusion about who this person actually works for. Yeah. Mm. It's, for example, imagine that, you know, there's a, a, a police person um, in, in uh, Amsterdam who carries at the same time various kinds of IDs. Some of them are based in Flanders, some of them are in The Hague, some of them are in Amsterdam, and then it, became, it becomes a little bit like, who does this guy work for? Uh, which has serious implications when you try to prosecute this guy's boss. So those are, for example, yeah. uh, mm. some of the, some of the 
some some of the confusion uh, where the, some some of the confusion can be uh, created. Uh, others as well are related to insignia. So, for example, uh, some units but were instructed. Sorry, just to get back on that mm -hmm. other topic, one more question: that vaguety in it, that's might ambiguity, be done on, ambiguity right. that might be done on purpose, right? That's so, exactly what yeah. I'm saying in my yeah. PhD. Yeah. So the, this, these ambiguities are not something that you can easily like resolve yeah. it's 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 almost it's not a, a bug it's a feature yeah uh, it's not something that you can be like where do they belong to? well that it's a little bit the idea that you're confused yeah and that's why it exists <laughs> yeah um and another uh, example is for example before they move into um operations that they leave their patches their insignia in the base so that if they're captured or if you know they fall dead or if they get arrested they can just be like well i work for someone blah 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 yeah. so these kinds of things i'm sure can be mm. you know but these are for example a really typical yeah really typical most, example ambiguities i can't pronounce this word <laughs> anyways um which are of course very very important and i think you highlight them very well there's another element i think that you have struggled with Mm -hmm. Looking at the specific sources at the ICTY, because many times I see you on Twitter and Facebook talking about sources being redacted. Right. So what is a researcher, what, what do you get from the legal sources which are redacted about these right. ambiguous things? Right, right, right. Can you well, talk yeah, about the challenges? Sure. Um, I always use this in my presentations whenever I talk about ICTY evidence. There is this notorious but also beautiful example. Um, the the case, uh, the trial is Stanisic and Simatovic. These two are sort of a uh, chief and a very high uh, level uh, members of the security, um, uh, the state security in Serbia. Um, so their trial is notoriously uh, redacted. Um, I often use this example. So their uh, final brief, which is basically what your lawyers write up at the end of your trial to say this is our case, uh, on a, uh, in a document that is 308 pages long, it has 2,788 times the word redacted, which I think just goes to, to say just how much of this case is, you know, you're unable to see. Um, what I think as a researcher, what you end up doing is, first of all, trying to struggle with your own uh, frustration, especially because there's no sign as to when these, if, these are ever going to be public. We don't know. Hmm. We don't know the process. I don't exactly know how one would go about trying to get bulks of these documents released. Secondly, I think you develop sort of an intuition as to sort of you, you have opinions that you can't write up. I can't because I can't prove. I don't, you know, I can't say this indeed happened, but I kind of, you know, have a sense that it did. Um, and thirdly, I think it, you become better at building puzzles and trying to almost guess what could have happened. But again, you can't include it in your research because you're not, you know, 100% uh, mm. sure. But I think this question is a good way to sort of segue just to make the point that it's really important in war crimes trials to think about historians that use these materials later on. Like, we need to have it built into the system when do these become a public? How? What, you know, that when they're sealed, that we also consider what is the time frame for unsealing? What are the reasons and the mechanisms for unsealing? There's no Freedom of Information Act. I can't, I can't write, please give me the, you know? Exactly, yeah. So all of these questions, I think, just bring out how important it is to not think about war crimes trials only as mechanisms for determining the guilt or innocence of a person, which, of course, that's what they're primarily for, but also to think of them as 
you know, a source for research because in the former Yugoslavia, there's no better place on earth where one would go to study violence in the former Yugoslavia. So um, I think that's really important to try to pressure these kinds of courts to, you know, release as much as possible. Not everything, because I'm well aware that there's very legitimate reasons for mm. certain things mm. to be um, redacted. Maybe the last question yeah. we ask everybody. And I guess that nobody's ever going to read all these judgments to get to a historical picture about what happened in the former Yugoslavia. What is your key tip for those listeners out there who are not familiar with the former Yugoslavia to get a sense of what had happened there? Right, right. That's one question. The other question, because I know you're a fervent reader, what have you read recently and what would you like to recommend to others? Oh, right. Oh, these are excellent uh, questions. There are, if you're interested in the former Yugoslavia, there are really like, I think this is kind of a... a, a Except for your own book, of, <laughs> of course. Of course, <laughs> which should be the first thing uh, that you would read, uh, uh, whatever I've written. No, but uh, I think that the former Yugoslavia is really well covered by scholarship, and I think it's done very, very well. And I think you can read it either from the perspective of looking at leaders, for example, Robert Donia's book on Radovan Karadzic, or you can look at sort of early kind of uh, efforts to document what had happened, like the BBC documentary and the book, The Death of Yugoslavia, or you can look at the reporting by Sense News Agency and websites that are, for example, specialized uh, on the crimes and the genocide in Srebrenica, which includes a lot of courtroom testimony, a lot of documents. Uh, also, the recent film on the trial of Ratko Mladic. So, like, there's really, if you're starting to form Yugoslavia, it's really, really rich. There's really a lot of great stuff that you can read and that you can watch and that you can engage with. Um, as for what I'm reading, um, well, I just uh, uh, recently uh, kind of uh, got myself uh, kind of a little bit out of the former Yugoslavia and I try to read a little bit on other things and I just got myself the book Assad or We Burn the Country mm, yeah. because I'm super into, uh, the, I'm, that's really weird to say, I'm, I'm really interested in uh, the conflicts in uh, Syria and Ukraine in particular. Uh, so I try to also um, read things that are um, on those conflicts, and this book comes sort of recommended. Um, Who wrote so, it? Oh, I can't, it's just, it's on the tip of my tongue, but I can't oh, remember, okay, but it's, okay. it's, it's, it's it well, up. yeah. It's, look it up and include it. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. called Assad or Ribbon the Country. Okay. Um, so I, I, think, I think that's kind of my next uh, reading assignment for myself. Eva, thank you very much. It's always thank a pleasure you. to talk to you and thank have you at the meals. Good luck with the defense. Yes, thank you. Yeah, I'm sure thank you're going to be fine. One, two, three. Hey guys, so you asked me to update you a little bit about what's been going on since we recorded the podcast. Let me just say a few words about my PhD defense at Utrecht University. So yes, true, it was online. I think, yes, one of the first uh, PhD defenses online at Utrecht University. It's a little bit strange. It's not... Um, the way we're used to normally uh, to defend our PhDs. But in terms of content, it's actually quite similar. The questions and the committee, that bit was actually quite similar um, to what I expected. Um, it was a really cool conversation. I mean, I was nervous the day or two before, but then five minutes before, I just sort of found my confidence and I felt in control. And it was actually really cool to speak to other academics who engaged with my work. Um, and asked really good questions, so I really enjoyed it. Uh, for me, it was just a, a question of wanting the PhD done, so I didn't really want to wait uh, for months to defend it um, live 
uh, so to say. Now, obviously, it's not great if you can't celebrate the same day with your colleagues and your friends, but at the end of the day, I think what mattered to me is to have it done and, you know, the fact that I did well and I can just celebrate later. I mean, really, it's not it's not such a disaster um, in terms of what I'm up to now. So right now I'm up to my nose in grading. Actually, I teach at Utrecht University. I teach several courses um, and it's been obviously a big change moving online and all of that. So I'm busy with that. I'm also preparing to teach again an online course on perpetrators for Stockton University in the US. I also got a grant from the Balkan Investigative Reporting Network to do some work on ICTY archives the International Criminal Tribunal for the Former Yugoslavia. And obviously, I'm going to spend some time trying to turn my PhD manuscript um, into a book. Uh, so that's pretty much what's uh, what's going on. So the PhD has passed. I'm quite happy with how it went. And now I can turn my attention to some other stuff.